We're privileged this morning to have Dr. Joe Watkins bring our message to us. Uh, Joe has been a member of this congregation for a number of years, he and his wife. And he's a wonderful man, had a great ministry in the local church as a youth minister, as a pastor, has come to the university serving the president uh, in the work that needs to be done in outreach into the community. And he's a remarkable man with a great message. Open your hearts as uh, Dr. Joe comes and speaks to us this morning. God bless you. Good morning. Thanks, Pastor. He's a colleague at the university, but I think of him so much in a pastoral role in this time and this season. And thanks to uh, Bob and uh, Pastor Paul Slater and all of the staff for all that you have done and led us through in these days. And to Molly and so many others who provide leadership in music and all that takes place that does need to continue on. Several weeks ago when Bob called and asked if I would speak on this day, little did we know that this would be the day after yesterday. And it was a good day yesterday for Jesus, wasn't it? We cared for a family. We remembered Norma. We heard testimony about the presence of Christ in her life. We laughed together. We wept together. And we lifted up the name of Jesus. And yet today is now today. And it is really very clear to us, even after last Sunday, and especially this Sunday, that Norma will not be with us again. But we can say today that the fingerprints of her life are deep upon the hearts and souls of our own. Amen? And so we are in this place today of having to acknowledge that she is not with us, and yet having to say that um, she nor Jesus would want us to remain in this place, and we do have to move forward somehow. And so there's a bit of tension for us, because we don't want to let go of all that is so strikingly meaningful to us about her and her life. And yet life lived in the kingdom of God still has purpose. And life in the kingdom of God still has necessity to live out and live into and lean into the world around us. For Norma would be the last person to say, stay here and remember me. It would not be her. And it should not be and cannot be us. And so uh, in this week, I've been thinking about, so how is it that we move forward? How is it that we move forward while acknowledging the loss of Norma? What has occurred to me is that there is uh, something significant about the intentional purpose of prayer that was so significant in Norma's life and in our own life. 
You may recall that Sunday morning five years ago when Norma was diagnosed with cancer. And, and as I understand it, this really is her third, was her third round of cancer. And you may recall with me that we gathered here at these altars and we laid our hands on her as a congregation and we anointed her with oil and we prayed for healing. And as we noted yesterday in the service, she outlived every prognosis. The the prayer for healing does not mean that we are healed eternally or permanently, does it? As much as, I'm not sure I want to claim that, by the way. I don't know that I want to live in this body forever. (laughs) I'm reminded every morning it's wearing out on me. (laughs) Anybody else want to testify? I see the young people saying, yes, I do too. But, But to think about that. So when we pray for healing... It is for God's provision for whatever life may yet be given to that person as long as he may choose to give it. And when Norma would go to the doctor and say, how much longer do I have? And the doctor would say, I have no idea. You've outlived every prognosis. You are way out on the the far end of expectation. You've lived beyond anything we might have imagined. It would be okay for us to say that God answered our prayer on that day. And so today I'm reminded that uh, all of the things that we do around these altars, as Joan and I have been a part of this congregation these last half a dozen years, we have watched and participated in sendings, sending young people off to college, sending people into places of service and long-term and short-term missions. And we've gathered around and we've laid our hands on them. It is a remarkable thing to see the congregation gather and one by one form a human chain of touch in those moments. And those moments of prayer and congregational touching become really sparks of courage and reminders that those folks are not alone wherever they are going. They are powerful. And I would suggest to you that those moments of prayer often and sometimes become the thing that keeps someone going when they're faced with the prospect of giving up or quitting. And they remember those moments of your prayerful touch upon their shoulders. In my own personal experience, in our own personal experience, Joan and I, has spent times of intentional prayer when we were in the process of making life-changing decisions for our family. Nearly 20 years ago, sitting on a sand dune in Monterey, California. We reconciled the reality that something was going to change and embraced that Trusting God that whatever was to come would be directed by him. And four years later, we moved to Point Loma. Into this community. Left a loving church behind. Who hoped we would never leave. And yet, 15 years later, we can say God has been faithful to us.
I want to draw our attention for a moment to the significant moments in prayer in the scripture where people have come into the presence of God. I think of Moses on the on the mountain with God. Of the intimate moment of God's calling of Samuel. And Samuel's response in an intimate place. If you read through the Psalms, most of the Psalms are intimate expressions of David's plea in the presence of God. For God's grace and mercy. If you think about the conversion of the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. And the time spent after those moments in those intimate times with God. And perhaps most of all, we think about the journey of Jesus as he had the habit of withdrawing from all of the pressure and all of the crowd to a quiet time with Jesus. Even leading up into the moments in the Garden of Gethsemane where he wrestled with God's call upon his life and ultimately came to the place to say, not my will, but thine be done. Moments of intimate, prayerful time with God are significant and necessary and important to us. And my thought this morning as we come to this day and the days that follow is that that it would be well for us to spend some time in prayer. And at the close of this service, I'm going to invite you to come around these altars, perhaps in these front seats or even if you're not able to come right where you are. That we would spend time for our own need. And so my mind has been drawn this week to the passage in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16. And, and I don't know if, Bernie, if we can put it on the screen. This verse has become for me a lighthouse verse in my own life. If you were to ask me, what is your favorite verse in the entire body of Scripture? This would be my favorite verse. Because it is invitation. It's invitation for all of us to come into God's presence. To come intentionally. To come with our need. And so I invite you to read it with me. And hear the word of the Lord. As we read it together, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The nature of this invitation, if you read it in all of its context in the book of Hebrews, is that the author is describing this remarkable change in the way that God is going to exchange life with the people of his creation. Up until the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the approach to God was closed off. It was regulated by the presence of a priest, and only the priest could go in. And you will recall in the Gospels the accounts of the crucifixion when that moment came when Jesus died and the veil was rent in two. Those powerful symbolic moments are suggested to us that God has now opened the way for all of us to come whenever we may need to come. That we no longer need a proxy. 
Because our proxy now, our high priest now, is Jesus Christ himself. And it is by the nature of Jesus as the high priest that invites us in to come. Just a few comments about this passage. This opening phrase, let us then approach God's God's throne of grace with confidence. The imagery of God's throne suggests that there is authority and resource to be given. The statement to approach God's throne of grace with confidence. And some translations use the word come boldly. Describe how we are invited to approach God. The words describe a posture of approach. I don't know about you, but perhaps um, there are times and moments in your life when you may feel unworthy. Uh, Those of us who have served in pastoral roles have heard people say to us, you know, I, I know I need to come, but when I get this taken care of or that taken care of, or I get this right or that right, then I'll come. Anybody hear a story like that? Maybe you've said that story like that. Or I don't feel worthy, or I'm not ready, or, or whatever the confusion or the excuse may be, this passage says dramatically and clearly, we are to come with confidence, face forward, head uplifted, eyes focused on Jesus and God himself, and to come boldly with confidence without embarrassment or excuse. Amen? There is a sense in this that this invitation of God's to come before his throne is an invitation of hospitality. That you and I are welcome in a place that truly we don't deserve to be there, but truly we are welcome there. And dress does not matter, and condition of soul does not matter, and condition of life does not matter. What matters is that God says, however you are experiencing life in this moment, this is how I want you to come. And you may feel that you may come confidently and boldly to me, in front of me, without reservation. So we don't need to slink in, sidle in, slide in, slip in, wait for the right moment, we may come. The verse goes on to say, so that we may receive mercy. Catholic theologian James F. Keenan says that mercy is the willingness To enter into someone else's chaos. Mercy is the willingness to enter into someone else's chaos. This verse invites me to come in the midst of chaos. Because God waits to enter into that chaos. Sometimes that chaos is a result of our own sinfulness. Not always, but sometimes. Sometimes it is our lack of perfect judgment. Every, anyone here ever make a bad decision? 
Anyone ever make a bad decision that resulted in chaos in your life? Not every chaos in our life is a result of sin. Sometimes it's a result of other circumstances. Sometimes our need to come before God's throne is to intercede on behalf of someone else's chaos. And perhaps that chaos creates chaos in our own life. Anybody want to testify? Anybody here in God's presence today who's living out with a circumstance in which someone else made a decision and that has rippled through your life in such powerful ways? It has altered your schedule. It has taken your resources. It has consumed your time. Sometimes the chaos is present in our lives because life itself interrupted us with disease or accident or economic circumstances beyond our control. And oftentimes we don't understand why what has happened has happened to us. Reuben Welch acknowledged it yesterday in his devotional. Life is not fair, and it is not fair that Norma died. But whatever the chaos may be in our lives, this verse says to me that God is willing to enter into it. To join with us, to engage with us. And and should we also say that it is okay for us to go over and over repeatedly? Because this verse, when we talk about to find mercy in our time of need, does not suggest there is a punch card or limitation on frequency. And sometimes the chaos never goes away. But what is true is that in the presence of God, there is grace and mercy for the chaos. And by the way, if we can come to confess sin, this may come as a surprise. But forgiveness is guaranteed. Right? Think of seeking mercy this way. In Luke's gospel in chapter 15, Luke records the parable of the prodigal son, and we know that story well. It may well be the most frequently preached passage in Christianity. But if you read the exchange of the son and the father in verses 21 and 22, the son comes and says, Father, I am not worthy. Have you ever read or heard the words of the father's response to the son? It's really important to remember that the father says nothing to the son. Verse 22 says, and the father gave orders for the feast. That's mercy. That the father in the picture of God says nothing except to go on to the next step to say, we are moving forward. And between us, there is no past. 
That's the image of God as we come before his throne with confidence so we may find mercy. And find grace to help us in our time of need. Alexander McLaren has suggested that the seeking and finding of grace in the presence of God is a type of communion with God, which on our side is the lifting up of an empty hand, and on his side the bestowing of a large, full gift. There is no fellowship with God possible on the footing of what people call disinterested communion. No, we have always to go to him to get something from him. The question is, what do we expect to get? McLaren goes on to say, my text tells us not the temporal blessings, not the answers to foolish desires, not the taking away of thorns in the flesh, but mercy and grace to help. Inward and spiritual blessings. I take it grace is used in what I call its secondary sense, not meaning so much the love of God unmerited, but rather signifying the consequences that love and the gifts bestowed upon us. And you know that it is a usage of the common word of the New Testament, thus making the word into a plural graces, the manifold gifts that love bestows on us. In other words, we are welcome and even expected to come to the throne of mercy and grace that we should fully expect to receive from God's resources that which is necessary for us to be equipped for the chaos that may exist within our lives. For the questions that may exist in our lives. For the capacity to move forward. For the burden of the day. For the resources necessary to deal with the interruptions of life. It may be possible that some within this congregation today are are wrestling with the question of why did not. God heal Norma permanently. That's an okay question, by the way. Ask away. God is not threatened by our questions, by the way. Nor is he threatened by our anger or frustration. When we come before the throne of grace with confidence, we are free to give full expression to whatever it is that is upon our heart and mind. In whatever way we may want to give, use to make that expression. Full of emotion. Full of wonder. And seek God's grace and mercy. In these next few moments, I want to invite us to take advantage of this invitation. That we might approach God's throne of grace with confidence. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I do not serve as your pastor. I have no idea what your need may be. Only that I have pastored long enough to know that in a congregation of this size, it exists. It may be today that you come because of the chaos that exists in your world. It may be that you come to seek wisdom for a significant decision. It may be that you come on behalf of someone else. It may be that you, become, that you come on behalf of Norma's family.
We prayed this morning for David, the children, the extended family. And I encourage you to continue to pray as God is present in their grief and loss. It may become that you come because you have unresolved questions. It may be that you seek God's forgiveness and salvation. Whatever reason you come to pray, this passage reminds us to come with confidence. Molly's going to come and lead us in a chorus. And I invite you to come. I'm going to come and pray here. But let's stand together as we sing this chorus. We come close to the end of this service. And while we sing, I invite you to join me here at these altars. You may kneel, you may sit, you may stand. Come and let's gather to pray while we sing.